But first, let's kick it off with Back to School. we got a great panel for you. Tracy Sherlock is here again. Uh, she's an education reporter. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Tracy. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Tracy, for being here. Also, Patty Backus, pleased to welcome her back to the show. Georgia Strait education columnist. Of course, she's the former Vancouver School Board Chair. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, Mike, and good morning, Tracy. Good morning, good morning, guys. Let's have a listen to Bonnie Henry's back-to-school message here. Going to school is so important, but school will look a bit different this year. We're going to wash our hands a lot, and you'll mostly be with the same group of teachers and friends. You will have to wear masks sometimes, and for some people, they'll wear them all the time. And if you feel sick, you'll have to stay home. The rules that we're putting in place are to help keep you safe at school. We all need to be kind, to be calm, and to be safe. All right, Dr. Henry there with a message to kids as they head back to class. I got my own son heading back to school today. Patty, let me go to you first. Do you think uh, everything has been done to keep kids and staff and teachers safe as they head back to school today? Well, I think school districts have worked very, very hard over the last few weeks to do everything they can within the the parameters they've been given and the budgets they've been given um, to to prepare. But I think, you know, they're facing a big challenge. I mean, the plan that Education Minister Rob Fleming released at the end of July called for everyone to go back to school pretty well full time, with a few exceptions. And he's backtracked on that somewhat over the last few weeks. But, you know, that's changed the goalposts continually for school districts. Tell me about... Patty, tell me about, you sent me a text there about a, you heard an, an anecdotal story about a, a teacher who's, what was it, their spouse had uh, contracted COVID? Yeah, this is, I mean, my inbox is starting to fill up with different cases, and I can't confirm these, so I'm cautious yeah. about sharing them too widely. But this was a report of a, a teacher who had attended a staff meeting on Tuesday, found out yesterday that their spouse uh, had tested positive for COVID-19. So that uh, that teacher will get tested themselves, but all of the people in that staff meeting are told, they, they're aware of it, but they're told it's business as usual, carry on. And of course, we, we don't know, parents will not know about this. And uh, I'm concerned about how much parents will know going forward when there are confirmed cases and how much information there will be to allow them yeah. to make informed decisions. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Tracy Sherlock, your thoughts on back to school today. Do you think the government has done everything they can do they've done everything possible to keep everybody safe what what about masks in the school and personal protective equipment i know you've been looking into that mm-hmm. first of all just to your first question i yeah. think it's really hard to tell because everything is different in each district so it's really hard to know exactly what's going on in every district and also it's hard to know if that's equitable for all students and then regarding masks and, and PPE, um, I saw on Twitter that the BCTF posted that a lot of schools um, seem to have not yet received uh, PPE and masks that they have ordered. So that would be a concern for sure. And then, of course, there's the fact that old, only older students are supposed to wear masks. And again, only when it's crowded, you know, in high volume situations. Yeah. Okay, let me let me ask you guys about the potential for an outbreak out of school, which I think is is obviously very possible here in the days ahead. And Patty, you already described one one circumstance there. L- listen to this now, because I think what you said, Patty, is interesting about disclosure, transparency, how much information is going to go to parents. 
if there is a case of COVID-19 at a school? Have a listen to this now. Here is Rob Fleming, the education minister, in conversation uh, this morning with Simi Sarah, and he was asked, if there is a COVID case at a school, will the government publicly identify that school? Listen to what he says here. Obviously, they do identify workplaces or uh, residential care facilities uh, when they have to. An outbreak is two or more cases, so generally uh, outbreaks are uh, disclosed to anybody that that works or is involved in in a facility. Okay, Patty Bacchus, do you think if there is a case confirmed of COVID nineteen at a school, do you think they should publicly disclose disclose that school? Well, it's a really tough call, and again, I'm not a public health official, and I think yeah. they have to weigh a number of factors. Privacy being very important, and privacy is of course very important in a school in a very small school. If someone's gone home sick. It might be quite clear who that is. So I think, yeah. uh, you know, I would err on the side as, as much information as possible. I believe in transparency uh, with, you know, as long as the personal privacy is protected as much as is within reason. But I do. As, if I had my kids going back or if I was working in a school, I, I would want to know um, and to be able to make a decision. You know, we all have our own risk tolerance levels. Some of us are more willing to, to take risks than others. And we like to know what we're dealing with. And I think the more we know, the more we can make those decisions in an informed way. I am concerned because uh, Minister Fleming is becoming quite artful at dodging questions and not answering them directly in his various updates. And I, I haven't heard a clear answer as to you yeah. know when does the notice go? What, is there a protocol that's clear? Because it it doesn't seem to be. And I I would want to know if my yeah. if my child is going into a school where there was a staff member who may may be positive. No, I feel the same way as a parent with uh, kids in the system. I, I would like to know as well. Tracy, let me play this for you. Here is uh, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, on the very same point, and he's got a very different message here uh, than Rob Fleming here. Here's uh, uh, Doug Ford. We'll be reporting it. As a matter of fact, I think it's so important that uh, we report uh, every single case, as we did with long-term care. We'll do the same um, in, in schools. Okay, that's Doug Ford, the Ontario Premier, saying, yeah, they're going to disclose if there's a COVID case out of school. Uh, this will be up to Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia. Tracy, what has she said about that? Well, first of all, just on the Ontario situation, it's yeah. really interesting that you asked me that because I was going to bring up the fact that I just saw on Twitter this morning that in Ontario, school districts are required to have a COVID-19 information page, and it actually, I'm looking at the one for the Peel District School Board right now, and it actually lists out each school and then confirmed cases, closed classrooms, and whether or not the school is open or closed. So that's definitely very different than anything we've seen here. However, to the Dr. Bonnie Henry point, she did say very clearly in one of her updates that outbreaks in schools would be reported. Now, she didn't specify that she would be identifying the name of the school. However, she did say outbreaks in schools would be reported. So what the details will look like, we still don't know. Okay, real quickly, Patty, before we take a break, uh, one of the big concerns that I've heard from parents, I know you've heard the same thing, is what if you want to keep your kid home and choose the remote learning option that we're told will be offered here? Uh, there's a lot of concern that if you choose that option, would you lose your kid's spot in the school when this whole thing is over? What have you heard on that? Is there any clarity in that yet? I think there's some clarity in some districts and, uh, you know, for example, Vancouver, they have a model where you can do a remote learning option and what's what's becoming apparent is 
in, in cases like that, it's heavily reliant on parent supervision and participation and pretty minimal engagement with the school. So it's really like we're letting you call in sick or work from home, but you're, you pretty much have to do it on your own, and, and which concerns me, you know, from an equity perspective, because not all parents are in a position that they can do that. I know many parents um, in of Vancouver students don't to have English as a first language, and, and it can yeah. be challenging trying to support your kid's learning program if you're, you're not uh, proficient in English. Um, and if you have to go to work yourself and you're not there to provide that kind of structure and support. So, but there does seem to be confusion in other districts still. There's some that say, are, are telling parents they have to withdraw from their regular school to register in, in a remote program that may be a part of an online school. So it, and it does seem very inconsistent from district to district yeah. and a lot of confusion. And I don't fault the districts. Again, this was really dumped on them late in the summer uh, by the minister who switched his position on, on remote learning and kind of left it to them to figure it out. And without clarity around whether they will be funded. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Schools are funded yeah. based on how many students are in seats on September 30th. And that's when they do their count and that's how government calculates their grants. So they have to figure out a way, if they're going to have someone assigned to teach those kids remotely, who's going to staff their classroom and can they afford to hold a seat and have those seats sitting empty and an extra teacher being okay. paid because they're budgeted so tightly. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about back to school with my guests, Tracy Sherlock and Patty Backus. Your calls to them, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Barbara in Cloverdale. Hi, Barbara. Hi, good morning. Thank you for so much for taking my call. Sure. So I'm, um, I'm a parent. My son is uh, returning to school. He's, going, he's gone from a private school to a public school. This is my first experience with the public school in my own school career. Um, and uh, my question really is like, like, I understand that they're funding as of enrollment numbers, the end of September, but why can't they, when all the private schools kind of, you know, know their enrollment kind of springtime, their numbers are fairly set by, you know, early spring. Why can't at the end of June, we get a raise of hands for who's attending and then have like the bulk of that funding kind of in place for school starting. Okay. And okay, then let me, like let me, the let me ask, that move in. Let me ask our panelist, Tracy, do you know? <laughs> well, I would just say it's the nature of the thing. The private schools are private. Only certain people can go there. Public schools have to remain open for whoever wants to come, whoever moves in and out of the neighborhood, etc. Patty, your thoughts? do a projected budget and they, they, you know, the money's still there, they're being funded, but it's adjusted based on September 30th. And, and as Tracy says, in a, in a private school, you have discretion over who you accept and people have to pay deposits. In public school, uh, every year, most public schools will tell you there are some kids who they thought were coming back, families' plans change over the summer, they yeah. may have moved or they changed to a different program. So, you know, people come and people go. You can't control that. You adjust for it. And that's why that September 30th, adjustment is there and school districts work very hard to project and get parents to commit but there's always going to be some some minor changes and it's usually not not huge this year could be of course very different okay let's keep taking your phone calls elizabeth calling from kamloops hi elizabeth hi hi um my comment is on whether they uh, make public known which school has covid cases yeah will that make a difference will you then pull your kid out of the school or 
would it matter? Uh, Me personally, I have a daughter that goes to a separate school that I had to work very hard to get her into to get her out of the public system. Mm -hmm. And for me, one case, will that make a difference? No. Will two? No. 30? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, me, thank you, thank you for that. I think it's a great question, and I, I've the, the same thought has gone through my own mind. And I just thought, well, if there was one case, my son's going to a, a huge high school. Like, if there's one case, and it's maybe even not in his cohort, would I pull him, keep him out of school? I don't think so. But if there was a, a very large outbreak, uh, including maybe kids in his class, I might think twice. But Patty, what do you think? Well, exactly. And I, that's where I think the more transparency, the better. And, yeah. you know, and I think back to when my kids were in school, when there was some kind of an illness in the class, whether it, even things like head lice, there'd be a case, we'd get a, a note home saying that in your division, your child's division, there has been a case of, you know, whatever it was, uh, bugs that go around with kids. Head so lice, we would sure. know and know what and, and instructions on what to do. Right. I would hope that would be the case with COVID. So if there was a case in your child's actual class, I'd want to know that. Um, whether it was a staff person or a child, um, if it, you know, was in the school at large, I, I think people need that information and I, they do it with other kinds of illnesses. And I would hope given the, the infectiousness uh, of, of COVID and the seriousness of potential effects of it, that yeah. people would have as much information as possible. Again, just trying to balance that out with privacy. I have been concerned all along, you know, I know Dr. Henry has reasons for it, but has, been quite, you know, withheld information for a while about, you know, where cases are occurring. They're very vague, just sort of general health authority. And I like to know, I want to know if my grocery store has an outbreak or my restaurant or whatever, so I can decide, you know, what I'm willing to risk. And I think parents should have as much information as they possibly can, and specifically if it is within their child's actual class. I think they should be able to know that. Okay, star 9898 is the number on your cell phone. Gord in Maple Ridge. Hi, Gord. Hi, guys. Yeah, you know, so my daughter is going back to school. She's in French Immersion in Ridge Meadows. And basically, I guess my question is, if something does happen and there is a bit of a break out here, we've been told that if she doesn't uh, register and go to school, she could lose her spot. Now, if we pull her, is she going to lose her spot when she wants to try and return? There you go. If there is some kind of an outbreak. Yeah, back this then. this is the question, and especially for a French immersion program that a lot of parents jump through a lot of hoops to get their kids into the into a French immersion program. Tracy, your thoughts? Well, that's a really complicated question, and I haven't heard any firm answers on that. Yeah. However, I feel like if the student is there in September and they're registered and they're counted, they should not lose their spot in the class. No, I agree with you, especially when a lot of parents have gone to a lot of trouble to get their kids into a, a French immersion program or, or, any, or any spot in a public school. I, you know, I think if you, if you opt for that distance learning option, you shouldn't lose your spot in the school. And I think the government really needs to give us some more clarity on that. I wish we had more time, guys. We're out of time, but I want to thank both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks Mike, a lot. Bye, Patty. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about those gender reveal parties gone wrong now. Lots of stories out there about how these gender reveal parties can uh, have uh, unexpected consequences. The latest one is that wildfire down in California. This is crazy. This burned thousands of hectares, forced the evacuation of a, a California city, all sparked by a pyrotechnic device 
at a gender reveal party, uh, investigators announced on the weekend. This is the El Dorado fire in San Bernardino County. This is the crazy thing. This is not the first wildfire to result from a gender reveal party to announce the gender of an unborn baby. Now, my next guest, widely credited with starting the whole gender reveal party trend. She held one of the first gender reveal parties. It got written up in a magazine, and it just spread like wildfire after that, so to speak. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Jenna Carvanitas. Uh, she is a law student. She's the mom of three. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Jenna. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you, Jenna, for being here. Okay, this is really fascinating. So tell me how you, you held your first uh, gender reveal party. When did that happen? It was in 2008. I was an early adapter to social media. So I had a blog since the early 2000s. And back then, I'm not sure if anybody remembers what social media was like, but uh, you more uh, you did not create content for other people at that time. You were sort of treating it like a diary that anybody was welcome to read. So I did this party for myself. There was about 10 people in my backyard, and we had a cake. No, we didn't light anything on fire. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, tell so me, how did you... Like you said by the magazine, and there it went. How did you do your gender reveal? There was no pyrotechnics involved, right? There, there was not even a candle on the cake. We just yeah. sliced into the cake, and we revealed the pink icing, and... Uh, we told, uh, you know, just our close family. And so everybody kind of found out together, which I think is also another difference with the trend. We were, I actually found out I was having a girl when I looked in the pink. A lot of times people are doing this to show their audience if they're having a boy or girl, and they already know. So I think that's another huge difference. Okay. The motivations yeah. come from with the party. And that was for sure probably one of the very first ones. Because I remember when my, my own kids are teenagers now, but I remember when they were born, like nobody was doing gender reveal parties. I'd never heard of it before until this whole trend started. So it's fascinating that you were sort of on the cutting cutting edge of this thing. Now, Jenna, I know that you've made you think that the way that some of these disasters have happened after these uh, gender reveal parties have gone wrong, you think that what that maybe you regret this this whole trend now. You know, I mean, I do, but I also think there are a lot more factors at play as far as how it's gotten out of hand like this. I think one of the problems is that the social media platforms themselves encourage bigger and bigger spectacles. And if they if they weren't, you know, doing a gender reveal party, they may be doing some other sort of party if I had never come along. But the point is they want a spectacle. They want the likes. They want the engagement. They want the audience because those translate to dollars. So the social media platforms are every bit as responsible as the people who are, you know, starting these forests. Maybe not every bit as responsible. <laughs> You're still responsible for going in the forest and starting a fire. But, you know, the idea of upping the ante and having these elaborate um, spectacles that endanger other people, those are also on the social media companies and platforms. Right. Yeah. The social media, people love to film the things and, and upload them to social media for sure. Do you think that people should just stop doing these, these parties, these big reveals? Absolutely. Um, you know, as far as the big reveals go, it's it's so damaging. It's socially harmful. It's physically harmful. Um, it's it's just not an inclusive type of party. I think if, you know, you want to have cake, you really don't even need a reason to have cake. You can have a cake for open a bottle of champagne on a Tuesday. I am not a person to, <laughs> to tell you not to celebrate. I don't want to shame anybody for having a gender reveal party. I mean, obviously, I had one. Um, but it's time to move on. In 2020, there are other things to celebrate. You can do a name reveal. You can do a pregnancy reveal. You could just have a party for no reason. 
And there's no need to really be um, attaching your baby's genitals to the party. <laughs> it, it is a bit weird to do that. Um, yeah. you know, have a name reveal. Hey, I think everybody's going to figure out who Sarah is. <laughs> what What is Elizabeth? kind of equipment does she have? I think people are going to know. <laughs> Just do a name reveal. Okay, speaking to Jenna Carvanitas, she is uh, widely credited for starting the whole gender reveal thing. When when did you first see people, like, when this thing took off after your own party party was written up in a magazine and it just became kind of a trend and a fad, and then you started seeing people, they just seemed to get crazier and wilder and people just want to sort of one-up each other, I guess, to, to do the most outrageous one with all these pyrotechnics. What went through your mind when you started seeing some of those parties and get, get, just getting more and more uh, complex, bigger? You know, when I saw the milder ones in the beginning, I was just yeah. sort of annoyed. It's like, seeing somebody else wearing your outfit you wore and you're like Ugh, i'm not wearing that outfit anymore like don't wear my shoes you know it just kind of was like annoying to me and then i started to see the problem mm-hmm. that with you know pinkifying everything and the gender problems and stuff like that of this huge dichotomy then i started to see the explosions and that yeah. i think the first explosion was maybe you know 2017 or 18 or so I was really upset, but I was also very shocked. I think everybody was shocked. That was when the danger. I mean, there was an airplane crash. It was like so shocking. Now I don't have the shock anymore because it keeps happening. And I don't think there is anybody who can say they're shocked. Okay. This is a known risk. It is unreasonable to be using pyrotechnics and flying planes and making pipe bombs. Those are unreasonable things to do. And we cannot do them anymore. There is no excuse for the damage that's been caused at this point. They, people absolutely need to just full stop, stop doing it. Yeah. Je- Jenna, you wrote, I, I was checking out your blog earlier and you wrote on your, your Facebook page that people, sh- basically what you just said, stop doing this, stop having these stupid parties, stop burning things down. What kind of reaction have you received from people? Because I know a lot of people, they run these parties and they have fun. They think we're just having fun. Do they think you're like a party pooper? What kind of reaction have you got? Well, the biggest reaction I've got is actually people not understanding that I didn't light the fire. (laughs) The media does not have access to the information as far as who actually started the fire. They see my face. My inbox is full of hateful messages like, you burned down a forest. You alone are responsible. And I'm like, "Uh, no, I am not. I baked a cake 12 years ago, okay? I definitely didn't set any forest fires on fire. So, uh, yeah, the reaction to me... um, People who know the facts, and by and large, the absolute majority of people have been very supportive of me because I am simply saying what a lot of people are thinking. I'm just saying it out loud. Everybody's tired of these parties, and I think everybody wants them to end. So they're they're passe. <laughs> yeah. Some of these bad outcomes from these gender reveal parties, you touched on a few of them. Some of them are just unbelievable like you mentioned that plane crash that one happened back in 2019 when somebody hired a a, a crop dusting plane to drop 350 gallons of pink water in front of people in texas and the and the plane crashed this is this is ridiculous and this it's it's amazing to think that this fire that's burning in california that was not the first wildfire that was caused by one of these things as well so when people see these things happening and then they hear that, oh, you started the whole trend. So you mean like people are kind of blaming you for starting the whole thing? I mean, yeah, I think yeah. it's people who who read a headline and don't read an article. Right. right. You know, um, that is very common. They read a headline, they see my picture, they come to me and they're like blaming me. But you can't blame me for a forest fire any more than you can blame the Wright brothers for inventing airplanes when there's an airplane yeah. crash. I mean... <laughs> 
people are responsible for themselves and they need to take responsibility for themselves and stop endangering others. My home is actually right now, I, I woke up at 2.30 in the morning to the smell of smoke. I am right near one of these uh, fires here in Southern California and uh, the, score, wow. the sky is orange. Nobody's happy about it. My kids are breathing in smoke. Like um, this really affects a lot of people. So people are just, who are throwing the gender reveal parties, they're seeking those likes. They want those likes so bad on the internet. They are receiving unlikes, <laughs> silent unlikes from their entire community. So if they could put it, you know, in that perspective, um, if it goes wrong, you're not going to be very popular. So, All right, Jenna, thanks for coming on and sharing your story today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's keep talking about back to school today. More than half a million kids heading back to class in British Columbia. First full day of school for kids. And I've got kids in the public school system and I've got a special needs child at home as well. Lots of parents out there do. So if you have a special needs child uh, in your home, please listen up as we talk about back to school for special needs kids. I think it presents a lot of unique challenges for parents and families and children in these difficult times. Really important subject, in my opinion. So let's talk about it now with my guest, Dr. Catherine Garforth. She is an advocate and consultant for special needs kids. GarforthEducation.com is is her website. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. Let's talk uh, just basically and generally about uh, what it's like if you have special needs kids in your family, just generally, not even getting into the challenges with school, but during this COVID-19 pandemic, it's got to be really, really tough, especially maybe if you've had your child in a program that has been shut down as a result of some of the social distancing uh, requirements that we've got in place. What are you hearing from parents with special needs kids? It's got to be difficult. Well, yes, it is, especially because the supports that they normally have access to aren't there. And one thing that I like to highlight is that any parent with a child with exceptionalities or a special need, they didn't get a special manual that came with their child when they had their child and brought their child home. So they're in this discovery process the whole time, and each age brings a new stage and new complications. So... When you have a child that has, you know, issues processing new situations or anxieties and don't have the same understanding of the situation, it's very difficult. And to have this sudden drastic change from going to, you know, their regular routines to a, a, a new world where they're, you know, they can't, you know, touch people, say hello have their regular communications, everything's turned upside down for them. So it's, it's, it's troublesome, and yeah. it's trying to hard to adapt. And at the same time, you know, our work systems have been changed, so people are working from home, yeah. um, income can change, the availability of the supports, with you have your uh, speech and language appointments, uh, occupational therapy, behavioral interventionists, any medical um, interventions that you need and the supports just aren't there. And we're trying to juggle all these balls up in the air yep. while staying sane, making time for ourselves because self-care is a huge important factor for yep. parents with children with special needs. And it's just been taken away. I mean, the child care options and the respite care yeah. it just hasn't been there so it's it's exhausting 
And even, you know, if you had family support um, with grandparents or cousins, aunts and uncles or friends, they may not have been available to help you in the same ways that they had in the past. Right. And it's not like your your home has suddenly become bigger um, and you're not able to have those same social interactions. And that can be very, very hard. And depending on your child's needs, their ability to comprehend this. And then now in September, we have this going back to school for the parents that are sending their children back to school. You know, it's a new environment, and it's going to be very difficult for those first few weeks adapting to the new changes of, you know, the new protocols and understanding how to interact in the classroom. Right. I, I think you really summed up a, a lot of the challenges really well there. I mean, I've heard a lot from parents over the over the last few months. Say parents have got their their kids are on the autism spectrum, for example, and man, it, it's tough because, like you said, a lot of those programs and supports that were there have been impacted and in some cases disappeared during the COVID nineteen pandemic. So now here we are with back to school. Maybe if you've got a special needs child heading back to class and. That brings a lot of concerns too. Like when you flash back to uh, the spring at the end of at the end of the last school year, mm-hmm. when we transitioned into some of that distance learning, what was that like in your experience with your clients and your own family? Like when you had special needs kids, how did that work out for kids at the end of the last school year for special needs kids? It w- it was really tricky. I mean, I have a child with special needs, and you know the support just wasn't there. Um, and the options that we had available weren't realistic for our family. And so at least, you know, my children are in, uh, last year they were kindergarten and grade one, so I didn't feel as bad for not being on absolutely every part of the equation, but my children are also enrolled in a French immersion program, and that's not something that I have the comfort to support. I don't speak French, so I can't you know, look at their assignment and tell them how to do it unless it's fairly obvious, which at the lower levels it is, but supporting them on some of the computer programs that they had, I could, I don't speak French. I don't understand the instructions that the program's giving them. So we weren't able to provide the support to keep that language side of the equation up. Right. And at least with my background, I'm able to provide them the academic support in English. Yeah, no, it's it's tough situation for sure. I've heard of lot. I've heard from lots of parents who are in that precise uh, precise predicament. Like for a lot of parents, they may say, "Okay, I, I have a special needs child. I would like to take that sort of learning, distance learning option," but then that brings a lot of individual challenges on its own. Then you've got special needs kids that will be heading back to class, and there's so many different categories. Like if you have a child with on the autism spectrum or OCD or hyperactivity. Uh, There's so many different challenges for kids heading back to class. What are you hearing from parents as they head back to school today? Are they worried that maybe the supports won't be there? Yes. Yeah. Um, definitely worried about, especially that the students that need those movement breaks or if they're being overwhelmed in class, being able to get up, walk out, go to the drinking fountain. Right now, we don't really know how that's going to look like. And, you know, there's an EA shortage. So whether their child's going to get the support that they need to succeed in class. Yeah. Uh, personally, for our family, we've decided to keep our children home during the transitional learning. Um, and that's uh, in the district that I'm in, in Richmond. 
you have the option of um, they are enrolled in their uh, catchment school. They have a classroom, but we can do the online learning and send our children back at a different time. We've chosen so this you won't, option. You won't, be- lose your, you won't lose your spots at the school when this, no. ho- when this thing is hopefully all over with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But for our children, it's more important to have the new routines set in place for the school because realistically, no matter how much the schools have tried to prepare for this, it's an unprecedented situation. And everybody's going to learn these new routines together. And for... Um, children that have problems with cognitive flexibility and who are rigid thinkers and very routine-based children, this is going to be very, very difficult for them, yeah. right? Yes. Trying to understand what the boundaries are and having everyone else in the classroom trying to learn that at the same time, that's why a lot of parents have the apprehension of trying to figure out whether their child's going to thrive in this. And if they are fortunate enough to have the opportunity to say, okay, we're going to put them in the transitional learning if that's an option in their district and make sure that things get a chance to calm down and normalize before we send them back. Okay. And you had mentioned the distance learning yes. that a lot of parents are uh, opting for for their children with special needs. The problem with that is it takes away the respite that school provides. Yes. Right? Um, if your child's going to school and out of the house from 9 to 3, I know different schools have different start times and end times, but we'll just go with 9 to 3, yep. that's hours that you are not completely responsible for them. Yep. And it gives you a mental break. Even if you're out of the office working or doing other things, it gives you a chance to hang up that hat and just reset and not constantly being attentive to your child's needs. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about back to school for special needs kids, my guest is Catherine Garforth. She is an advocate and consultant for special needs children. Uh, Garfo- uh, her website is garfortheducation.com. Phone me on this now. If you have special needs kids at home, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, the impact on your family during this pandemic? If you have questions or concerns about back to school for special needs kids in the school system, call me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. What is the most common, Dr. Garforth, what's the most common uh, concern that you hear from your clients with uh, with back to school starting today just the the new routines and um, i work with a lot of students on the spectrum and the the issues with cognitive flexibility so they're going to be kids that you know will hear that masks are mandatory or that you need to wear masks and they'll have these routines in place and then struggle with opportunities when masks aren't worn and understanding why they're not worn in that situation. And it can be very distracting for them. And then uh, those that have, you know, issues with anxiety or OCD, um, germophobia and sensory issues, just trying to make this environment one that their child will be able to focus on what they're trying to learn instead of focusing on their concerns about COVID-19 spreading and the safety precautions around them. 
Okay. Let's take some calls in the open line here. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Dan in Coquitlam. Hiya, Dan. Hey, Mike. How you guys doing? Good. Good. So, yeah, I've got a son who's disabled, got respiratory issues, in a wheelchair, and we, along with my two other kids, we're keeping all three of them home yeah. for the time being and possibly the whole year. Yeah. This yeah. year. Now, the only issue with us, the school is very accommodating for him, but the bus service, he requires a bus to school and they won't hold that spot for him. Oh, If wow. we choose to take him back. Gee, what school district are you in? Mission. Mission, okay. Yeah, this is what I mean. Like, it just seems to kind of vary from district to district about what kind of accommodations will be will be available to people so so when you say that you won't he won't have a spot in the bus what what does that mean the bus won't it, when this whole thing is back oh. over and you want your son to go back to school they won't send the bus or not necessarily but they can't guarantee there'll be a spot for him yeah so they won't actually hold his spot on a bus yeah what, so what is he it? requires being in a wheelchair my wife can't lift him in and out of the vehicle to get him wow. to school so what about his spot that, at the school will that be reserved yeah, for him school is good for him all three of my kids' spots are saved, and yeah. the actual school is being very accommodating. My other two kids are actually going to do home learning, um, district learning, I guess you call it, and that's not through the school, but my uh, son with a disability, he's actually going to have uh, support directly from the school at home. Okay, so you're, you're, you're satisfied with the, what, the service you're getting from the school so far? Oh, yeah, yeah, the school has yeah. been yeah. good, for okay. sure. That's, yeah. good to, that's good to hear, Dan. Good luck to you. What, what do you think All of right, that, Catherine? Thank Thanks, Dan. Catherine, your thoughts? Well, I think it's, it's a huge inequality issue that we have parents who, you know, our children are um, supposed to have equitable access to education. And if you're telling me that a wheelchair-bound child is not going to be able to go to school because the bus service that takes them there yeah, isn't available, right. that's, that's not right in any way, shape, or form. No, I don't get that. You need to make sure that there's a will for that child to get to school, and it shouldn't be the onus on the parents. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's go back to the phone lines. Jen calling from Surrey. Hi, Jen. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. I just had a question regarding funding um, and how that will work if, um, like your last caller said, um, if he's staying at home, the student's staying at home, what happens to the funding that's allotted to him? Will some of that be distributed to the families um, for extra support or respite care or, you know, speech and language pathologists that work with them? Um, Will anything be given to the family now that they're not in school? Okay, Catherine, do you know? Um, It all depends on the option that you are selecting. Right. So if you were doing a homeschooling, the the money would go to the homeschooling program and what any the, the money that's assigned to them for the homeschooling program would follow them. And same with the distributed learning. I am not 100 percent sure on if you are having your child enrolled, but doing the transitional learning or whatever it's being called. Um they in the in the spring, some of the districts were able to su- provide some support at home, but I think it's again this is a new scenario where we're having the majority of students in the schools, so those support services are going to have a different way of coming about, especially with this cohort model. Yes. 
Yes, we just got one minute left here, Catherine. In your experience, for, for parents of special needs kids who, who choose to send their kids back to school today, a lot of them will, of course, rely on those uh, education assistants in the, in the school system. Um, what, are, what are you hearing on that? Are, do, you, do you believe that the, the number of education assistants is uh, adequate and the supports are adequate in the public school system for special needs kids? We just got like 30 seconds left here. No, and that wasn't even the case before COVID. There are not yeah. enough EAs available that are trained to meet our students' needs that require their services. There are students that are entitled to them with their autism diagnosis, but they aren't available and the school doesn't have access to them. Catherine, thanks a lot for coming on with your expertise today. Thank you for having me. Non-believers all along the way. I have one thing to say to those non-believers. Don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. Uh, There you go. Oh, the famous uh, quote there in sports history, don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. Rudy Tomjanovich with the Houston Rockets in the NBA in the mid-90s when they won back-to-back NBA championships. I thought we'd just play that off the top because I thought it was appropriate given the result of the game last night with the Toronto Raptors backs against the wall. They're down 3-2 to the Boston Celtics in their game. They lose that game. They're out. Their season's over. Their defense of their NBA title comes to an end. But like he said, don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. And that was a dramatic game last night. Double overtime. The Raptors win it. Kyle Lowry, what a great performance there by the Raptors' uh, leader there. Man, that guy just plays his guts out. Unbelievable. 33 points last night. And that was an exciting game. Game 7 now, Raptors versus the Boston Celtics. Okay, let's talk a little sports here now with my guest, John Jang. He's a contributor here at the show. Hiya, John. Yeah, I'm very, uh, very happy to be here, Mike. And wow, what a game indeed. You mentioned Kyle Lowry. Just an incredible performance. Some people say he's perennially underrated. I'll tell you this really quickly. Uh, There's a list of people who are 34 years old and have played 53 minutes in an NBA playoff game like Kyle Lowry did last night. That list of people, only six players, very exclusive company, Wilt Chamberlain, John Havlicek, Robert Parrish, Oscar Robertson, Bill Russell, and now Toronto's own Kyle Lowry. Very good company. Yeah, he played amazing. The guy's desire and his work ethic and just uh, just playing his guts out last night. I was uh, super impressed. Rob Williams is on the line as well. He's the sports editor for the Daily Hive. Hiya, Rob. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What did you think of that game last night? Incredible. They're just uh, they're hanging on, right? Like they've uh, you know we're through six games. The Raptors have been blown out in two of them, including game five. I think a lot of people maybe thought the Raptors were on the way out in game six and uh, they squeak it out. Um, You know, they had chances to win at the buzzer at the end of the uh, fourth quarter and at the end of um, the first overtime. And and I think you almost got the feeling like, oh, geez, maybe they've they've blown their chance here. But uh, yeah, they persevered. Um, And yeah, like everyone else, I was blown away by Kyle Lowry. I mean, he's just so gritty. And this, yeah. this whole Raptors team uh, is just such a, uh, a an easy team to to pull for. It, it's a uh, you know they're without the that one superstar. There's no Kawhi Leonard anymore, but right. they just play hard throughout the entire game. Uh, great on defense and and uh, great team basketball. Yeah, and some of the other uh, players on the Raptors, John, I thought having a a, a bit of an off night in in mm-hmm. some cases. And when you've got a guy like Lowry 
as the team leader who's just leading by example and just leaving like just leaving everything on the court with his with his uh his performance that's got to inspire the rest of the team doesn't it yeah you would think so Uh, it was a great night for kyle lowry and sometimes when your young guys are just uh, struggling a little bit on an off night you need your age uh, proven veteran to step up that's what lowry did i do expect that in game seven tomorrow pascal siakam will have a better night og ananobi has to step up in a big way because you can't really rely on a guy who's already 34 years old to do this back-to-back nights Okay, this this team, the Celtics, Rob, has proven to be a tough one for, for the Raptors. I, I sort of wondered at the start of this series whether Boston seemed to have Toronto's number here, but, man, Toronto's had some pretty dramatic wins here, to say the least, in this series. What are you looking toward for Game 7? Yeah, I mean, you know, many ways, the, the, this is not a great matchup for, for the Raptors. They've yeah. had to scratch and claw just to get it to 7. Um, you know, you're... I, I, the guy that everyone's looking to right now is Pascal Siakam. Uh, you know, he's I, he's supposed to be Toronto's best player. He's cracked over 20 points just once in this series so far. Um, you know, he only had the 12 points in a double overtime. You know, in 54 minutes, a double overtime game, 12 points is not really a great outing for him. He's doing things away from the ball. His defense, his rebounding, as has been uh, solid, but, uh, you know, he's a scorer and he, he needs to, um, find a way to be a difference maker in game seven and, and, uh, you know, he'll get that chance. Okay. Game seven tomorrow night, Raptors versus Celtics. Let's talk another big sports story out there, guys. And that is the kickoff of the new NFL season, which is tonight, the defending champion, Kansas City Chiefs there. John, what are you looking forward to for the uh, the NFL season here? This is what a weird season this is going to be with this pandemic going on. Yeah, very strange season. There was no preseason at all for the NFL, so that's a little different. A lot of young rookie players haven't had a chance to really show what they're capable of doing in the preseason. So it's going to be a, a different one for sure. I, I do think that uh, a lot of veteran players are going to get more playing time this year because young guys just don't have the opportunity to show what they can do early on, and teams know that we need as many wins as possible. So I don't think you see a big impact from most rookies unless you're you know one of the top uh, 10 picks in this year's draft uh, honestly for this year's super bowl if we're talking that i, I still got uh, the baltimore ravens lamar jackson uh, coming off an mvp season i've got them in there and i will go with the new orleans saints this year okay um your your thoughts rob on a new nfl season and how it's being impacted by the pandemic yeah i think that uh it's, it's going to be interesting because this is the this is the last of the big four major pro sports leagues uh, to play during the pandemic. And they're going to be the first to try to play with fans in attendance. It's going to be, I think that last check, there was about five teams that were looking to play games right off the bat with uh, about 20% uh, capacity. And, uh, you know, these are, I mean, of course, these are outdoor stadiums or massive 80,000 seat stadiums for the most part. Uh, I still have my my questions about twenty, you know, potentially having fifteen to twenty thousand people at a game. Um, so that's going to be very interesting. I'm also interested to see uh, what the spectacle looks like, and that's that's a, such a big part of of the NFL is, is their rabid fan bases and the noise when teams are on defense and, and all of that that uh, that glitz and glamour that goes into an NFL game. What's that going to look like? for most games that are going to be played without fans or even 
the games with uh, with reduced capacity. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at a, a statement here from the Seattle Seahawks for the, the start of the year, and the Seahawks saying that there will be no fans in the stands at CenturyLink Field in Seattle, at least for the first three home games of the season. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if there will ever be fans in the stands down in, in Seattle there. John, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think they will have fans in the stand, and that's going to be very different because, uh, as people know, the, the 12s, the Seahawks fan base, very passionate, very loud. They're one of the most loudest uh, fans in the building for home games in Seattle. That will be different. I know teams have been testing artificial crowd noises. A lot of players have hated it so far. Most of them all say that it's just it's not the same, obviously, when you see all those empty seats. So. Yeah. I, honestly, I, I do think the Seahawks are doing it right, though, because you have to err on the side of caution and safety. Oh, yeah. Don't risk anything happening because people need the NFL from all the, the, the serious news that we've had so far in this year. So I think the NFL needs to be more, more careful. And I, I would hope to see that most teams just decide no fans. We're just going to go with players. Yeah, it's going to be weird. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of the NFL. I enjoy watching the game. It's going to be weird that some some games will have some fans and others others will have the empty empty stadiums. Just we got just a minute left here, guys. Rob, let's finish up with you. Do you th- what do you think about with this NFL season starting tonight? Do you think they're going to be able to pull this off during this COVID nineteen pandemic? Like, do you think they'll play the whole season? Yeah, you know what? I really had my doubts about uh, about the NFL more than any other league plan. Um, there's just so many players on every team. Uh, it's a contact sport. Uh, has a lot of yelling going on. Um, so, you know, it's not as, as uh, it's hard to social distance like you can in baseball, which is the other major pro league that that is operating without a bubble. Yeah. Um, I, I think they're going to do whatever they. I, I think they're going to do whatever they can to to get a uh, season off. So I think the season will go off. I think there will be some hiccups. There, the one positive, or the couple positives, I would say, with, with getting a season off is that they only play 16 games. Uh, so that does help keep, you know, these these teams in their own kind of mini bubbles to, yeah. to a degree. Um, and they, there hasn't been a major outbreaks um, like we've seen in some other leagues uh, during training camps for the NFL so far. So that's a positive, but yeah, I, I, I think there, there's, it's not going to be without hiccups, just like we saw in Major League Baseball early on. Right. Um, but MLB's found a way through it, it looks like, um, and hopefully the NFL will too. Okay, it's big money. We know money talks. So NFL kicks off tonight. <laughs> Chiefs versus Texans. NFL is back. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, no worries.